This morning we're going to look at two men. We're going to look at a snapshot from each of their lives. And as we look at these two men, we're going to ask a question. Who's the crazy one? Because one of these men is wise and the other one is foolish. I can tell you that ahead of time. But, as we look at these two men, it is not going to be immediately obvious which one is which. So let's keep this question in our minds as we go through this. Who's the crazy one? The passage we're going to look at runs from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1, through to chapter 14, verse 23. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 282. And in the large print, 433. And these two men are presented to us one at a time. So first, I'm going to read from chapter 13, verse 1, down to verse 12. Saul was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. We'll stop there. And before we get into this, some of you may have noticed an issue back in verse 1. You may not have noticed it, but some of you will have. And I think it's worth trying to clear that up before we move on. Because verse 1 gets translators all tangled up. If you read three or four different versions of verse 1, 
you'll find big differences in how they translate this verse. But it's not because the numbers are unclear in the original. It's because the translators have trouble making sense of the numbers in verse 1. Literally, verse 1 says, Saul was a son of a year when he reigned, and two years he reigned over Israel. Translators look at that and they say, well, Saul obviously wasn't crowned king at the age of one, and he obviously reigned for longer than two years. So they make various attempts to try and fix verse 1. Here, the NIV has suggested adding the number 30 to indicate Saul's age at his coronation, and then the number 40 for the length of his reign, making his reign a total of 42 years. But I don't think verse 1 needs any fixing by us. I believe it makes perfect sense as it stands. The best explanation is that a year passed between Saul being anointed as king and actually becoming king. He was king in waiting, in other words, for one year. And then although he was on the throne of Israel for 40 years, we know that from elsewhere in the Bible, although he was actually on the throne for 40 years, in God's eyes, he was only legitimately king for two years. That's how long passed between Saul becoming king and God rejecting him as king, even though he stayed on the throne for another 38 years. Now, if I've lost you with that, don't worry about it. But if you had noticed that issue, I think that's the best solution to it. We don't need to fix the text of the Bible. We just need to work harder to understand it. Well then, verse 2 tells us something that Saul did after becoming king. He established a standing army. Before this, it seems that the Israelite men were called up to fight in emergencies. But there was no professional army. They all did other things. Farming, probably. But verse 2 tells us Saul chose 3,000 men to form a permanent army. He put 2,000 of those under his own command and 1,000 under the command of his son, Jonathan. We'll hear more about Jonathan later. But he gets a mention here because apparently Jonathan wanted to make this new army earn its wages. Verse 3 says Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba. That's in Israelite territory. Now, obviously this is going to get the Philistines riled up. And so the message goes around Israel in verse 4, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. You'll notice that somehow Saul manages to get the credit for Jonathan's work. But all Israel knows, there's going to be a backlash. They will come after us for this. And so the new standing army has to be beefed up again. All the Israelite men are called from their farms to come and join the army. And sure enough, we're told that the Philistines arrive with a massive force. They arrive with all their modern equipment. It was way ahead of Israel's equipment. 
the Philistines set up camp where the Israelites can see them. And it's a terrifying sight. In fact, for most of the Israelites, it's just too terrifying. Look again at verse 6. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Saul doesn't run. He's the king. He knows he needs to act like the king. And some troops stay with him. But they're all quaking with fear. And at this point, we learn something else. Samuel had made an arrangement with Saul. We're not given all the details, so we can't be sure when this arrangement was made exactly. We can't be sure where Samuel is at this point and what he's doing. But the bottom line is this. Saul was to wait seven days for Samuel to come. And then Samuel would offer sacrifices to God. Saul knew and he understood the command from Samuel. But he chose to disobey it. And as you and I look at the situation, we might decide he had perfectly good reasons to disobey. Apparently, Samuel said he'd be there within seven days. But when the seventh day dawns, the men who are left with Saul begin to lose their nerve. Verse 8 says, even those men began to scatter. The majority of Saul's army have gone before this. And now even the most loyal men are taking off. They're convinced that Samuel's not coming. And Saul says, well, forget this. I'm the king. I've got to do something. Verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. So it seems Samuel does, in fact, arrive on the seventh day. He was not late. Saul's nerve broke a few hours too early. And when Samuel questions him, look very carefully at Saul's explanation. Verse 11, what have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. If we're honest, don't we have a lot of sympathy for Saul here? Don't we find his arguments pretty persuasive? He does not seem crazy. He's been anointed by God to lead God's people. And yet his army is melting away like snow. Every hour he waits, the less man he has. 
Samuel doesn't seem to be coming through like he promised he would. We can see Saul's perspective here. Surely if he waits, the Philistines will win. That's what the circumstances are telling him. Surely he has to do something. And he doesn't want to do anything without asking God's blessing. How can we argue with that? Surely the only wise and responsible thing was to do what Saul did. And really, this isn't a big deal, is it? It's not like he's opposing God. He's acting for the greater good of God's people. That's one perspective on this situation. It's the one that grabs us, I think. We can feel the pressure on Saul. And we sympathize with him. But there is another reality in this situation. At this point in time, God's word comes through Samuel. God's king, we've seen over and over again, is to be under the authority of God's word. And Samuel is God's mouthpiece. Through Samuel, Saul was given a command from God. And he chose to disobey it. Saul decided, in fact, that it was wise to disobey. He decided it would be foolish to obey. He stuck with God's plan for a while. He stuck with God's plan as long as it seemed reasonable to do so. But eventually, when God's plan seemed to have failed, Saul did what seemed best to him. From Saul's perspective, it looked wise to disobey. And that's the way things are almost always going to look. Time after time, you and I are going to look at our circumstances and we will find powerful arguments for disobeying God's word. How many times have you read something in the Bible... And even after you've worked out the context and the clear meaning and all of that, how many times have you read something that's clear and your reaction has been, well, maybe that worked back then, but not today, not in 2013, not in this kind of society, not in my circumstances, not in my work environment. Not in my school. Not in my family. Not in my financial situation. We react that way and we think we have good reason to disobey. But what we don't realize is obedience to God is almost never going to be easy. There will always be plenty of excuses for us to disobey. It's so important for us to grasp this and face up to it. If we don't get this, it will trip us up again and again. This is how one writer puts it. What a huge mistake it is 
to think that to obey God is an easy thing to do. Trusting God is neither straightforward nor simple. The foolishness of disobeying God cannot be seen by weighing the circumstances. In most circumstances, it looks foolish to trust and obey God. And this is what trips us up. We expect it to be easy to trust God. And when it's not, we just give in to what looks wise to us. And so we need to get hold of this. Disobedience to God may look wise, but it's not. And Samuel explains why it's not in verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord, the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Samuel says, you are a fool, Saul. Your disobedience was crazy. Why? Because of the God you're dealing with, Saul. Saul was looking at a moment in time. And based on that, he made his judgment about what was best. But God was looking all the way into eternity. That's why Saul was crazy to disobey. God is not in the business of trying to trip us up with irrelevant rules. God is working out a big, comprehensive, eternal plan. As Samuel says, he's building a kingdom for all time. Nothing God commands is ever pointless or petty. His word is always relevant and it's always best. None of God's plans for you are ever half-baked. God's commands have been thought out by the biggest mind in the universe. So the fact that you and I don't see how obedience is going to turn out well, that shouldn't really surprise us. None of us can see even five minutes into the future. So even in the most difficult and terrifying situations, why would we think disobedience to God is ever going to be wise? Samuel tells Saul that his kingship is not going to last. We'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. But for the moment, notice where Saul's disobedience has got him. He is again without Samuel. Except this time, Samuel is not on his way. Samuel has gone away. And God's word has gone with him. And what does Saul have left? About 600 men. 
We've been told the Philistine army is as numerous as the sand on the seashore. What's the use of 600 men against that? Saul disobeyed God so he could keep these men at his side. And he has succeeded. But without God, what good are they to him? Saul would be better off having two men with God than 600 men without God. And that truth sets us up for what comes next. We're about to get a fuller introduction to Saul's son, Jonathan. But first, the writer of 1 Samuel shows us more about Israel's desperate situation. In the rest of chapter 13, which I'm not going to read, we're told that the Philistines are sending out raiding parties. They're wearing Israel down. And the Philistines are also in control of the technology. We're told there was not even one blacksmith in all Israel. The Philistines had made sure of that. And that is very significant. Because the result of not having a blacksmith is explained to us in verse 22. So, on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. It's as if the writer is saying to us, you thought Israel's situation looked bad? Let me tell you, it looks a lot worse than you thought. 600 men and only two swords among all of them. It's almost like he's prodding us here. Do you think God can make anything of this? Is there any hope here? That's the introduction to what we read in chapter 14, verse 1. And I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 12. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozaz and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. 
So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan's behavior looks crazy. He looks like an impetuous, irresponsible young man. On the other hand, Saul isn't going to do anything rash. He's sitting filing his nails under a pomegranate tree. He's not going to risk anything. And Jonathan whispers to his armor bearer, let's go. The two of them slip away, remember, with one sword between them. And apparently the situation is like this. The Israelite army are at the top of a cliff, and part of the Philistine army is on the cliff opposite. And in between the two cliffs, there's a stretch of open ground. Jonathan says, let's climb down this cliff, cross the open ground, and climb up the other cliff. Simple. Actually, he says more than that. Look again at verse 6. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It's important to see Jonathan is not doing this because he's some kind of manic optimist. He's not doing it because he thinks he's Captain America or Captain Israel in his case. No, Jonathan is fully aware of the situation. On the face of it, this is crazy. Everything is against them. But Jonathan knows the Lord. He knows if the Lord steps in, then two men and one sword are more than enough. And notice, he's not cocky. He says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Jonathan knows God is not duty-bound to bless this plan of his. Jonathan understands that God knows more than he does. He knows God may have a much better plan here. But rather than just give in to the Philistines, rather than filing his nails under a tree, Jonathan is going to try something. He knows there are no degrees of difficulty for his all-powerful God. If God chooses to save, he can do it by many or by few. So Jonathan says, let's step out, trusting God, and let's see what he'll do. Our confidence is in him. We can't see the big picture. And if this fails, well, God is still in control. Jonathan is not paralyzed by fear in his situation, and neither is he convinced of his own wisdom. He's going to try something, and he'll try it knowing full well that God may have other, better plans. Well, the young armor bearer says, go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. This guy is inspired by Jonathan's faith in God. 
The Philistines lean over the edge of the cliff and they have a good laugh at these two guys shaking one sword up at them. They invite the two men to come up for a lesson. And amazingly, Jonathan takes this as a good sign. In verse 12, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan says, they've had it now, these Philistines. When you and I get our one sword up there, they haven't got a chance. This looks foolish. It's crazy. Jonathan's confidence in God is at odds with his circumstances. We could come up with plenty of reasons why Jonathan shouldn't be doing this. He's next in line to the throne. He shouldn't be risking himself like this. He shouldn't be dragging this young lad along with him. Surely Israel needs Jonathan back on top of that other cliff, commanding the army his dad is too depressed to command. Surely that's what Jonathan should be doing. That's how it looks to us. But in fact, Jonathan is the wise man in this situation. He shows us that confidence in God may look foolish, but it's not. It looks like the key factors here are Israel's lack of equipment and Jonathan's lack of support. But actually, the key factor is the power of Jonathan's God. Look at verse 13. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet, with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Then what happens next is that Saul and his 600 men figure out what's happening. They join in, and verse 20 says, when they arrived, they find the Philistines in total confusion striking each other with their swords. It turns out the lack of Israelite swords is no problem to God. He's using Philistine swords to win this for Israel. And on top of all that, Israelites who had deserted over to the Philistine side start to fight for Israel again. The deserters who are hiding in the hills come out to fight. And verse 23 says, So on that day the Lord saved Israel. Now the battle is not completely over. It's won, but it's not completely over. Next week we'll look at what happened in the tail end of this battle. But for now, the important point is this. From a human perspective, Jonathan's confidence in God looked foolish. It looked crazy, but it wasn't. And it will always be that way. 
there will always be reasons to hold us back from living with confidence in God. And when people look at our circumstances, our confidence in God will almost always look foolish to them. But time will prove always that confidence in God is the only wise way to live. Now, there is something else we need to notice about this because we could very easily misunderstand the point here. The point is not that if we are confident in God, then we're always going to be rushing forward with some daredevil plan. That is not the point. There is no virtue in doing things that look crazy just because they look crazy. Think back to Saul in chapter 13. For him, what was the thing that would have indicated his confidence in God? Well, if he had trusted God in chapter 13, he would have waited. He would have obeyed God's command to wait until Samuel got there. In Saul's case, in his circumstances, rushing ahead showed his lack of trust in God. For him, confidence in God would have meant gritting his teeth and waiting, even while his army and his chances seemed to be getting smaller every minute. So the key challenge here is not to go bananas for God all the time, nor is it to sit and wait all the time. The challenge is to trust God instead of our circumstances. Saul's circumstances said, forget what God has commanded. Take matters into your own hands. Keeping this army by your side is the most important thing, more important than obeying God. But on the other hand, Jonathan's circumstances said to him, just sit tight. This situation is too big for you. Don't get involved. Don't take any risks. The challenge is, whatever our circumstances, let's trust God instead of our circumstances. Maybe for you, trust in God will mean waiting for the right person to marry. Instead of panicking, And marrying the person who's eager to marry you, but who's not the right person. Everything in you might be saying, just take this opportunity. You've given God more than enough time. And he hasn't come through for you, has he? Stop wasting your time waiting for him. It's a challenge to trust God instead of your circumstances but it's wise. It's wise even if he never gives you a spouse. I hesitate to say that because I know it's easy for me to say. But it's true. It's a challenge to trust God and be honest about your faith in God when you're at school when you're at work, 
most of the time it will look wiser to just keep your mouth shut, keep quiet about what you believe. It's a challenge to make sacrifices for God. Maybe stretching yourself financially for God. It will always look wiser not to do that kind of thing. Well, how might this apply to us as a church body? For Jonathan, the question was not obedience or disobedience. You notice that. The question was, would he take a risk for God or would he play it safe? Would he stay under the pomegranate tree with his dad or would he go over the cliff and then up the other cliff? Would he sit and hope for the best or would he pursue victory? And I think that we as a church have to face this question together. Next week, we're going to celebrate our 40th anniversary. And the atmosphere around us has changed in the last 40 years. There's more hostility to our message than there used to be. And the challenge for us is, are we going to sit here and not do anything risky? And hope that we last another 40 years? Or are we willing to enter into the battle? And our battle is not against Philistine swords, it's a battle for men and women's souls. It's a battle against the spiritual forces of evil that have a hold on men and women's souls. This is something we need to think about and pray about very seriously as elders and as a church body. Will we decide to sit and hope for the best? Or will we take up Jonathan's words? Let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps he will come and bless the plans that we make. He's not duty-bound to bless them. But when we make our plans and when we step out with confidence in him, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So let's pray together for God to guide us in the months ahead. Let's be prepared to move forward. And let's see what God will do. So who is the crazy one? The crazy one is a man or woman who trusts their circumstances more than they trust God. We're going to respond together with a song of confidence in God. Lord of our dawning. If you'll stand with me, please.